Amen. You can grab a seat. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love them to go be a part of what we have happening with the Vine Kids time. Miss Jody's coming down the, the hill here. Let's take them out the side door. No. I know, she's not that bad. Perfect. Thank you. The vine, it's got a heart. I assume that's, I don't know if it's me. Oh, sorry about that. Perfect. Thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate it, sweet girl. I love it. I'm getting skinnier. I appreciate it. I've been chunky for a few weeks now. Those are delightful. Um, You notice in your seat, so we, we have a pledge card. I'll be talking a little more about that next week, but we wanted to go ahead and give them out. Part of the reason that we're in this season, uh, kind of talking stewardship a little bit now, is because back in November when we would have normally done this, we were doing night church and we were meeting over at Crown Heights. It was kind of a mess. And so I'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but we want you to consider only if you're a member, a regular attender with us, kind of supporting a life and ministry. And, and the way we begin to gauge and think about budgets is by using your pledge cards to kind of think about what we can do this year and where the Lord is leading us. So we ask you to take this home and pray over it, think about it, and uh, we'll be bringing it back next week and the week after. But I'll talk a bit more about it next week. But you can stick that in your stuff so that you have it. We'll also have a copy of it available on the city um, so you can download that as well. I'll be talking a bit more about that. That'll be the sort of tail end of of this little series we're on. So we've taken a little bit of a break from the book of Acts. So we've been in there for about a year. We've kind of been looking at and what it would truly mean to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to follow Jesus wherever he led. And I told you as we started going verse by verse, and I teach verse by verse through a lot of different kind of books, and as we started the process, we'd have to take breaks along the way because it was 28 chapters and was going to be forever. And so we've kind of intentionally stopped and started as we've gone, and we'll be picking that up the first Sunday in February. But for a little short time here, we're doing this little little mini-series, if you will, really, because there's a lack of better term for it in my head. It's just a three-week look at James 4, because we're in this really new chapter in our life as a community, and I want to take full advantage of the opportunity that we have to sort of be in this space and to be in this sort of growing kind of place in our lives and really explore what Scripture says about turning loose of things in our life. And last week, we began the process by looking at what it might truly mean to let go of ourselves. And James begins chapter 4 by saying, look, he gets really personal and he says, listen, there's a lot of fighting and quarreling and struggling going on inside of you. And he's writing to these believers that have been scattered all over the area, right? And uh, I told you last week that um, James is addressing the Jewish believers that have been scattered all over the area that kind of took place at the stoning of Stephen, which was the first of the martyrs. And last week I said the stoning of Philip, and I really appreciate all your emails correcting me. It was very pleasurable. Um, I was, of course, meant the stoning of Stephen. But I'm glad that you're listening. It's great. Um, so yes, he, Stephen was the first martyr, and he uh, at his stoning, the church began a great persecution against the church. There began a great persecution, and the believers were scattered. And so James is writing to the scattered believers that are huddled together in all kinds of different places in different cities, and he's saying, why are you fighting? There's quarrels, there's struggles, and he says, you want what you can't have, and you covet, and you steal. And then he looks at him, and he says, in this letter, he says, you are an adulterous people, Right? that you have chosen friendship with the world, and friendship in the world is hatred towards God. And what we explored last week was that what James is saying is that the problem in our relationships 
with other people in church or life or our just general dissatisfaction with our life or our financial situation or our marriages or whatever is not usually someone else, but it is a spiritual condition that begins in our own heart. We began to explore what it looked like if I truly let go. Let go of my, of my bitterness or my frustration or my anger, but really letting go of myself. Because James tells us that when we live this way, we're living in adultery. He calls us an adulterous people because we have chosen to love the world more than we have chosen to love God. We are having a love affair with the world. And we talked about letting go of ourselves. We got really kind of personal in there. And this week, James is going to show us the remedy to that adulterous life. And we're going to look at, as he explores, talking and dealing with our own pride and sort of a progression of movements that lead us to fully surrendering and submitting our hearts to the Lord, coming face-to-face with the sort of adultery that we're engaged in, right, and saying yes to the Lord. And so we're going to explore the picture of letting go of my pride as we move into James chapter in the second part of that. And so this will be the second week, and then next week we're going to wrap it up by talking about what it would be or what it would look like to let go of my fear for tomorrow. Because a lot of us have a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears wrapped up in what happens tomorrow. And not tomorrow in terms of just the day, but really in terms of the things in the future, right? And James is going to address that really specifically to say, what if we truly believed that God was the protector and provider of our lives, and we trusted him enough, not just with our today, but with our tomorrows as well. So we're going to kind of be on this path. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to James chapter 4. And we're going to be right in the middle of it this week. Um, I'm going to kind of read the part we were in last week so you could hear it all in context. And then we will dive into that middle section. So let's take a moment and, uh, and let's pray. And then we'll dive into it together. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for this church. Not because this church is anything special. Um, God, but because you have assembled people that want to worship together, that want to open your word, that want to live in community. And God, I'm I'm just grateful that people would give their Sunday morning to come and spend time here with us together. Lord, we come as a people. Um, We're a broken people, a sinful people, a people with all kinds of issues. Some of us walk through these doors with fears and deep failures. God, some of us walk through these doors with apprehension. Some of us have haven't been to church in years. Some of us have been to a hundred churches and run from every single one of them. But God, you meet us in the middle of whatever those things are. And God, I'm so grateful for that. And so Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, you would just meet our, our hurts, that you would meet our needs, that you would meet our fears. And that God, you would speak into them. God, we believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so God, we don't take this lightly. This is your truth. We want to anchor our hearts and lives in it. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, however you need to say it, just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We don't invite you in here. We know you're already here. We just release control of our lives to you. Um, God, teach us what James 7 means when he says, Submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Lord, we love you. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to begin in chapter 4, verse 1, and I want to read where we were last week so that you understand the context of where we are 
this week. Reading scripture in context, as you've heard me say probably dozens of times, is incredibly important, right? We can't just proof text and pick things out and like or don't like. We have to understand the context. And the context is James is writing to a scattered group of believers. They are followers of Christ, people that have already given their life to Jesus, and most of them are Jewish. So they have been raised in Jewish households, but they have given their life to Jesus as Messiah, Savior, which has caused them on most levels to be sort of ostracized from their own families, and they were a lonely people group, all right? And James is writing to them, and he's addressing some very personal issues that they're dealing with. They are fighting, and they are struggling, and they are quarreling, right? And so he's writing to this group of believers, and this is where we were last week in those first Six verses. He says, What causes the fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is where we're going to be this week, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What we're going to see today is a clear remedy and progression based on what we identified as the problem last week. And the problem that we identified last week is that we are living as an adulterous people. Now, most of us don't think about our sin like that, right? We think about our sin as as some mistakes that we've made or some things we did in our 20s or whatever, right? But we don't think about our own sinfulness as being adultery towards God. That when we befriend the world and we live in general dissatisfaction with our own lives, when we let our pride or our egos or our lack of forgiveness or whatever it is that we explored last week, those things, when we let those run our lives, our desire for stuff, our own motives, our general just feeling of I wish I had more, when we let those things run our lives, we have taken another lover. That we are saying to God, you are not enough for me, right? I want to fill my life and my heart with something else that will satisfy me more than you. And if you look at sin in those terms, you understand why James uses the word adulterous. Because we're basically saying to God, in all of your promises to be all that I need, it is not enough, and so I need something else to satisfy me. And we become a friend, as James says, to the world, and therefore enemies of God. And when we identify that problem, James begins to lay out a solution. And the first thing we have to understand in this solution is we have to come to grips with the real truth that this infidelity that we live in is real. And most of us don't like to admit it. And I ended a little bit here last week, but we don't like to talk about sin this way. Because we've been told, or a lot of us have been told most of our lives, and oftentimes by well-intentioned but misguided theologically preachers that tell us that we are all inherently good. We just sort of make some mistakes. That people in their very core are actually good. 
but we have a couple of bad apples and it ruins the whole bunch. But inside of all of us, right, is inherently kind of good things. And sin really is just sort of letting the bad things rise to the top. And I can't tell you how many times I have heard that taught, preached, or read it in a book or read it in a blog. Problem is, it's just a lie. Like if you read scripture, scripture is so clear on the fact that there is nothing good in us. That we are completely and totally sinful and we are dying and we are dead in our sin. And the only hope that we have is through Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that that infidelity, that, that sort of love affair with sin and with the world and with kind of general dissatisfaction of all that God says he is, is actually hatred towards God. James says it himself. And we have to understand that the infidelity in our life is real and we have to begin to take sin seriously. We have to begin to take our failures towards the Lord seriously. It's not a game. I mean, I'm always at times, there's kind of places in my life that I'm kind of reminded of the, the connection between sin and death, right? And, and I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm really talking about sort of that inward spiritual decay. And years ago, a lot of you have knew that we, we do, or a lot of you know that we do this ministry in the park on Wednesdays. We do Bible study and lunch with a lot of our homeless friends. We've been doing it for six or seven years now. And we had a friend that was a homeless guy. His name was Jimmy Lee Morris, and a lot of you guys had met him. He used to come to church with us. He was killed several years ago in an accident. He was a chronically homeless guy. He was a crack addict. He was a, he was a disaster from every picture that you would ever paint of what a disaster looked like. Um, had no desire to get help, no desire to get well. Addiction has just had just riddled and ruined his life. And uh, we would take him food and clothing, and a lot of you guys in here were part of his life and had taken him sleeping bags and all kinds of stuff. And I remember, it was about four years ago, one, one winter, maybe five years ago in particular, I was, I was sitting with him, and he always called me Pastor Treb Prater for some reason in my full name. So I always called him Jimmy Lee Morse. And, and we were sitting there, and he was huddling under all these blankets, and it was snowing, and he wouldn't come inside, and we had taken him something. I can't remember what it was. And I was sitting there, and I was talking to him, and he was just talking to me through this little hole in his blanket. Um, because he was warm, I guess, underneath there. And he said, you know, Pastor Trump Prater, I am, I'm dying. And I said, I know, we're all dying, Jimmy. He goes, no, like inside, I'm really dying. Like the things I do are killing me. And I said, I, I know, the behavior, the, the addiction, it's killing you. He said, no, 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 not that. He goes, I'm dying on the inside because I know that there's something better for me that God has. And it was conversations like that that really remind me that there is a deep connection between sin and death. That when we realize that we are living in the opposite of what God has for us, that we are living in spiritual death. And the scriptures talk so much about it. And that when we understand that this infidelity that we are engaged in is real, when we take it seriously, it should break our hearts. And I'm going to show you why here in just a minute. But the first step to this sort of movement of falling back in love, or maybe in love for the very first time with Jesus, the lover of our soul, is recognizing that the infidelity we are engaged in is real. And it's not a game. And that your struggles and the things that God is calling you to let go of that you continually won't acknowledge or won't do are breaking God's heart, and they are causing this giant rift in your relationship with him. And you are living as an adulterer. And I am too. 
We're an adulterous people. We have chosen another lover. So we've got to understand that truth. James goes on to say this. He says, then, here's what we do. Here's this progression. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So he says, look, the first thing you've got to understand is once we acknowledge the reality of our sinful selves, we have to submit ourselves to God. Now, our problem is we have a really kind of jacked up definition of submission. For a lot of us, submission just means giving in, right? So if you've been in a relationship and you've been in an argument, submitting sometimes just means I'm going to give in because I no longer really want to deal with the reality of where this argument is going, and it's so much easier just to let you do it. When Meredith and I argue, this is what she says to me all the time. Like, I give up, you win. I'm, so, you know, I'm caving because I know that you let, you know, kind of dealing with you in this way, right, it's just much easier just to let you do whatever it is you're going to do, right, and then is to actually deal with it. And we, we think that is what submission means. And we do it in our relationships all the time or because it's just easier than having to actually fight constantly. So we just give in. Problem is we, asso- we associate that truth with our spiritual lives. And so we think that if I just give in to God on this, then he's going to overlook the other things, right? So if I just give God what he's asking for, like I'll give a little bit of, of money to the church, or I'll show up and I'll, I'll make sure I go to that Bible study, or I'll, I'll quit doing this, and he will overlook this glaring disaster that I'm sort of hiding behind me. And we think that if we can just submit a partial corner of our lives, God will be like, hey, Trev, that's, that's a really good effort, man. And he'll overlook the things that I am hiding. But the reality is, of course, God knows everything. The definition of submission, true submission, is giving completely into the will or power of another. So if we think about submission in terms, spiritually in terms of that, that phrase, giving completely into the will or the power of another, in this case of our spiritual lives, it's the giving in completely of our will, of, of our will completely to the will or power of the Lord. Completely, wholeheartedly, going all in. Submission carries this concept of I give up. Like I completely give everything over to the Lord, right? So, uh, you know, the, the sort of correlation or the connection is imagine that you were, I don't know, some kind of criminal or you were a bank robber, right? Man, I hope that doesn't connect with anybody. You're like, hey, he's talking right to me, you know. Uh, and you're a bank robber. And you rob this bank and you're in, kind of running from the police and they are chasing you and they finally catch you, right? And they catch you and you throw your hands up and you basically have to completely surrender everything and you're like, I give up, I'm done, I quit running. Um, the correlation is what we do with God is, is we give up but we say, God, I, I'm sorry for running, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hang on to the gun and the ski mask and these other things because I feel really comfortable in those, but I'm going to give back the money, right? And I'm going to tell you I'm sorry for that, but I'm going to keep all the pieces. Well, the cops, of course, would be like, uh, no, you get to go to jail, right? And you get to give me the gun and the ski mask or whatever you rob your bank in, right? You give all those things over. We do this with God. We, we think surrender and submission means, God, here, I give you this little thing here. And I'm going to quit hanging out with that one guy. Or I'm going to quit doing this one behavior. Or I'm going to try and cut that one thought out of my mind. And I'm going to say, here, Lord. But what I'm going to keep on is I'm going to hang on to all the fear, and I'm going to hang on to all the failure, and I'm going to hang on to all the thoughts that give me that thing. Right? Because this sad reality is where I'm comfortable. But submission means giving completely in to the will or power of the Lord. Throwing those hands up as a robber and saying, I I can't. You get it all. Like, take me away. 
That metaphor works spiritually, actually. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. Like, God, I give up. I'm done running. I'm done fighting. I'm done wailing. I'm done crying. I'm done hiding. I'm done sweeping things into my closet, hoping you don't know they exist. Like, you can have a door and access to every piece of my life because I give up. That's what James is talking about when he talks about surrendering or submitting, right, completely to the Lord. He goes on to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we submit wholly and completely to the will and power of the Lord and we resist the devil. Now, most of us don't like to talk about Satan. We don't like to talk about the devil. We don't like to talk about hell because it doesn't make us feel really good. And so our churches haven't known how to deal with it, and so they just ignore it. But the truth is, Scripture talks a lot about it. Jesus himself talks a lot about it. And James here says, you have got to resist the devil. And he names him because there is a war that is being waged on your life. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the devil cannot take you, right, You are completely safe eternally in God's hands. However, he can ruin your gospel effectiveness. He can destroy who you think you are, and he can wage war on who you claim to be in Jesus. John 10.10 says that the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. He is a liar, and he wants to derail your life. And temptation comes, and he will say the exact thing that knows will tear you apart at the exact right time. He knows how to whisper at you when you look in the mirror. He knows how to whisper at you when you're alone. He knows the things that you hate and that you despise about yourself that you've never uttered a word to anyone else, and he bubbles them to the surface. He is doing everything in his power to destroy you. And so what does James say? Submit, give in completely to the power and the will of Jesus. Resist the devil. That means you've got to stop believing the lies. You've got to stop believing what he tells you about yourself. Because if God calls you beautiful and beloved and you stand in front of the mirror and you see something you hate, you're calling God a liar. If God tells you that you were created for something more, yet you continue to engage in this behavior that you know is destroying you, James says you've got to fight it. You've got to fight it. It's not enough to say, God, I'm really sorry. You've got to be actively fighting against those things in your life. And what happens? When you resist the devil, he flees from you. Why? Because we have victory in Jesus. God is ultimately more powerful than anything this world, this present world, and that world could ever throw at us. The enemy cannot stand up against the power of Jesus Christ. When we resist him, he will flee. When we resist him in the name of Jesus. But most of us, we've given up resisting. We just realize that this is a battle I'm going to always deal with, and so we just quit. But James says, listen, If you're going to truly let go, you've got to let go of that part of you that says, God, I I don't want to give you all of me. And you've got to let go of the fear that just says, this will always be part of my life. You've got to start fighting back. Fight the thoughts, fight the behavior, fight the ideals. And what will happen? The devil will flee from you. Verse 8, come near to me, right? God says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now, the better translation is actually the word draw, which sort of encompasses this all of uh, less action and more spiritual and physical to coming close to or drawing coming close to. And so James says, listen, submit and resist and draw or come near to God. Now, how do we do that, right? We can't physically take ourselves to God. God has to do the action of bringing, but he has given us this incredible tool 
as believers, as followers of Christ, for coming into his presence. You know what it is? Prayer. Prayer is the avenue by which we know God. Not just about him, but he has given us access to who he is. It is the most intimate form of communication we have with God, where not only does God get to hear about our things, but he lets his will and his heart be known to us. That when we engage in prayer, deep, real prayer, God reveals himself, and as he reveals himself, we are drawn to him. And he says that when we do that, he draws to us. So we submit and we resist and we spend time in prayer. And I can tell you right now that if you are living in general dissatisfaction, that you are living in complacency and inauthenticity and all those things that you feel like mediocrity is the definition of your life spiritually, I ask you to examine your prayer life. I ask you to examine your time in prayer. Is it just you throwing out a whole bunch of things before meals or before bed about what you need God to do that next day? Or are you truly asking God to reveal himself, to draw you in, to show you his heartbeat, to help you fight these things, to let go of yourself, all of these things, the confession about being an adulterer, all of that stuff. I venture to say that most of our prayer lives exist as a token habitual experience with God because we know that we should. Not everybody. But those are the seasons of my life. I pray because I know I should. My life isn't moved by it, and that breaks my heart. James says, submit and resist, right? Draw, come. And he says this, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we submit. Now, it's a progression. The first thing we do is just surrender. It's not about action. It's just about letting go. We resist the lies that the enemy is going to throw in our life. We dive headlong into prayer, a relationship with God. And then we've got to get about the difficult action of cleaning and purifying. Now, a lot of us think that has to happen first. We think that before God will truly love us or accept us, we have to clean and purify. Like, I can't go back to church, right? I mean, you know what I did last weekend? And so we think that if I can just kind of make my apologies and fix that, then God will be okay. Or if I can clean myself up enough, God will say, hey, that's better. Now I can start kind of making this thing work. That's not how this progression works. The first thing is to say, God, I'm done. I, I quit. I quit running. I submit to you. I'm going to fight the lies in my life, and I'm going to find my life in prayer. And then I'm going to get about the business. After all that, of the difficult part of growing and maturing in Christ, which is cleaning and purifying. Most of us love to go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Not because, not because we like that sort of movement, but because we think that's all that's required of us. The truth is, is that asking for forgiveness and confessing actually has a movement on our end, and it is the repentance part that walks away from that stuff. And that involves cleaning and purifying my life. If you've ever worked in the yard or on a car, sometimes when you're done, you have to go to the sink and you have to scrub the garbage out from underneath your fingernails, out from underneath your fingers and your hands. You've got to work that soap. Your spiritual lives and mine are similar. We've got garbage in our life that takes some scrubbing. It's not just going to disappear. There are people in our life that are toxic. Sometimes we have to scrub the hurt out. Sometimes we have to scrub the behavior out. Sometimes we have to get rid of things. 
Jesus himself says that if, if you're engaged in sin and, and one of your eyes is causing you to sin, you've got to get rid of it. And he's not talking really about gouging your eye out, but he's talking about you've got to make the movement to destroy whatever that is, to purify your heart and your life from it. Quit living in it and then just asking God to forgive you. Like, take the moments and clean and purify. Because this is what James says you are, right? He says you are double-minded. A double-minded person is really just someone that says, God, please forgive me, but doesn't really want to do anything about what it is that they need to be forgiven for. I mean, it's the story of my life. Probably the story of yours. We live in a way we know is broken. We ask God to forgive us, but we won't do the things that it takes to cut the garbage out. The thoughts, the ideas, the toxic nature. Purify, right? Scrub, not just your life, but your hearts. Sometimes the behavior of sin is easy, but it's the residue that it's left on our hearts that hurts. Sometimes purifying our hearts means believing that we are who Jesus says we are. We can stop doing that with her, with him, with whatever. But it's a whole other thing to begin to believe that God calls me his beloved. Purifying our hearts is living in both of those categories. It's washing my hands and letting the purity of God cleanse my heart. He goes on to say this, Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not real fun. But I love it because we live in a context of a Christian culture that is about feeling good. You can have the best you, five ways to a better whatever. And we have people that have written books, one book called Everyday Friday, how to have the best day every day of your life, right? This is what we want to hear. We want to show up to church and have somebody tell me it's all going to be okay. And then inside of me, if I just tap into goodness, it's going to be great. Power of positive thinking. Quit worrying about what's wrong. Start thinking about what's right. It works great selling tickets to stuff, but when you read the Bible, there's some bigger issues. James says, listen, your sin, your infidelity, your brokenness is not about laughing and it's not about joy, but that you should grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because it's real and it's not a game. God hates your sin. It breaks his heart. And that fact is not something we should just ignore. In fact, it should hurt us. It should grieve us. It should break my heart that I continue to choose the world over the God who died to give me life. And so what James says is that we should have this grief in our hearts over our sin. It's extremely real. And that just thinking positively is not going to change anything, but instead takes the serious nature of what God called sin and died for and pretends that it doesn't exist. And James says, deal with the reality of your failures, grieve and mourn and wail and quit laughing and carrying on like God doesn't care. Because what really gets amazing is what happens in verse, that last verse, verse 10. Right? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will do what? He will lift you up. In our Western context of Christianity and American living, we are a self-made people. You fall down, you do what? You pick yourself back up, you rub some dirt on it, right? You do some push-ups, you knock it out, 
You do whatever you got to do to get up again. Problem is, biblically, there's no getting up again. We're dead. We grieve and we mourn and we wail and we humble ourselves before God. And what happens? When we do that, what does God do? He lifts us up. The more often you continue to pick yourself up out of your sin, tell yourself it's going to be okay, the more often you're going to find yourself laying in the middle of it. Because only He, only God, can pick you up, right, and restore your life. All the attempts we make are attempts in futility. And I love this because it's a progression. Think about it for a moment, right? Submit yourselves, first and foremost. Nothing else matters. Surrendering to Jesus. Fight the enemy in those lies. Resist him. Find your life in prayer. Draw near to God, right? Purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands. Grieve, mourn, wail. Humble yourselves. In other words, drop your pride. And what happens when you do these things? He, Jesus, will lift you up. Here's what we want to do. We want the one-step wonder. We want to go from, God, I'm really sorry, to he lifts me up and everything's perfect. Sanctification, which is a fancy word for saying a process of growing in our faith, of being made holy, of becoming more like Jesus, all believers live in, it is a difficult, lifelong process. It's not a once and everything's better. Some of us are stuck in various phases here. Some of us need to fix our prayer life. Some of us need to grieve, mourn, and wail. Some of us are stuck in the crying part. Some of us need to say, God, I've got to let go of my pride and quit fighting you on every corner and on every turn for what I think I need in my life. And let go of my pride and humble myself before you, recognizing that you are God of the universe, the God that made the stars and the trees and the earth and the sky, and I am just the ruiner of things. That's me, Trevor Brady ruiner of things. And I need you desperately. And scripture is very clear that God will then restore us and renew us and lift us up. And you can't do it. So if you're trying, it's why you're tired. If you're trying, it's why you're living in mediocrity. If you're trying, it's why you're spiritually restless. Because we are trying to do these things ourselves. Truly letting go means letting go of all of our desires for control, all of our desires to oversee, all of our desires to give directions to God based on what we think is best for us. And just saying, I'm done. I'm going to fight the enemy's lies. I'm going to resist him. I'm going to find my life in prayer. I'm going to purify my heart and my hands. And I'm going to let the sin that is so real break my heart. And I'm going to ask you to lift me up. It's the remedy for adultery. And the adultery I'm talking about is the adultery that we take towards the Lord when we fall in love with the world. The remedy is right there. The question is, are we really willing to engage it? As you think about your own life and your spiritual life and the maybe mediocrity that you're living in or the passionless or just the whatever it is, Ask yourself, am I really willing to live the remedy that it will take to break the cycle of adultery, to break the cycle of infidelity to the Lord? That I have chosen myself and the world over Him. And to break that cycle, I have to give up. I have to let go of my pride, of myself, of the lies, 
And I have to ask him to humble me and just pick me up. He will lift you up. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is real. It's not always easy to hear. And I know that for a lot of us, this, this text means a lot of different things. It's not a catch-all. It's a process steps for a lot of us. Some of us are in different places. But, Lord, that's the amazing thing about who you are is that you meet each one of us right in the middle of our own struggles and fears and failures and issues and whatnot. Lord, the truth is that text is a picture of my life. I do everything in my power to remedy my own brokenness and then ask you to just do what I need you to do. And it's just, it's a disaster. God, you want all of us, all of our hearts. You want us to submit completely and totally to you to let go of our fear and our failure and our struggle. God, you want us to turn loose. You want us to submit ourselves, to surrender ourselves wholly to your will and your authority, to fight the lies of the enemy. Because he whispers those things at all the right times that you know and I know I'm so vulnerable. And I believe him. I believe him. Even when you tell me something else, I believe him. And God, I want to fight that with everything I am. I know there are people in here this morning, God, that have bought into the lies, that have allowed them to control their lives. Father, teach us to be men and women of prayer draw near to you through the avenue that you've given us, to not just ask for things, but to know your heartbeat, and then to decide that we're going to purify our hearts, to rid ourselves of the garbage that we know is infiltrating and causing us to take another lover, to purify and cleanse our lives, and recognize that that sin is so real, to grieve and mourn and wail. God, if the reality of the gospel has never brought us to a tear, we really understand where the gospel is. That I was dead and sinful and broken, and you loved me anyway. And I am so undeserving of your love. And my sin breaks your heart because I continue to do it. And yet, when we humble ourselves, you are the restorer. You lift us up. You give us purpose. You call us beloved. You are the redeemer. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that whatever point in there we need to hear, that you would stamp that on our hearts, undeniable, and not allow those untruths that we have bought into to claim victory in our life. But God, teach us to let go of our pride and say yes to you. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Thank you.